Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. You can learn more about the program and our church when you visit walkintruth.com or you can download our free Living Truth app. Now here's Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 40 called The Second Isaiah. If you haven't been with us on Wednesday night, we have taught through the first 39 chapters of the book, and it has been really a beautiful, majestic time as we have moved through that book. But chapter 40 of Isaiah is a major turning point in the book, uh, so major that some scholars have proposed a Deutero-Isaiah hypothesis. You say, what? Well, what they've said is basically there's such a change and transition in the theme and the emphasis that there must be a second Isaiah who wrote it, they especially say this because of the fact that it's written for a people that would live over a hundred years beyond Isaiah's time. It's written for the people that are in Babylonian exile who were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And they were taken to the land of Babylon. Among them, if you read the book of Daniel, was Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Uh, You all probably are very familiar with that story. Daniel stood tall in that culture. He refused to be defiled by the king's delicacies. He was probably a teenager, no no more than 18, but maybe even as young as 14. He was taken captive some 500 miles from his homeland as a slave to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, the court of a pagan king. Uh, Among the things that the pagans did is they worshipped other gods, as you know. Marduk was one of their main gods. They believed he was a god involved in creation. But they were definitely polytheists. That is, they believed in many gods. And uh, you can even study today Babylonian mythology. And it's kind of similar in, in one sense to Greek and Roman mythology. Councils of gods, many gods, much like they're very close to humans, if nothing else. They have to be appeased and all this stuff. But that's what was going on at this time. And so what happens at the end of Isaiah 39 for context is Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, this is verse 5 of Isaiah 39, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, 39.6, The days are coming when all that is in your house And all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons, verse 7, who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah, this is an interesting reaction for a king of his day who at his time, uh, time was the threat was Assyria to his own nation and kingdom. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, in light of this prophecy, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, and then notice this, for he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. Maybe he's seeing, trying to see the bright side of the equation, the, cap, the cup is half full instead of half empty. He knows that this is going to happen to generations that will come from his own body. Future generations will be taken captive to a foreign land. But he says, well, at least I'll have peace and truth in my days. We can't live that way. We have to live transcendently. We have to be able to say as Christians that we're living beyond even our own generation. That there are implications for things that we do or don't do that will move well beyond 
uh, our own lifetime. We can't just settle and say, well, at least it's been cool in my day. No. We want freedom to continue on. We want the Lord to be exalted in this nation for years to come. And we have seen, and I know that this resonates with many of you, an incremental slide towards humanism and secularism, uh, man being elevated, God being demoted in this country. The name of Jesus can't be said publicly anymore. You can't pray. You, you know, uh, it, it just goes on and on. You all know the stories. Chaplains aren't supposed to say the name of Jesus anymore. You know, there's one uh, email going around, I think, that captured it. There's Tim Tebow on the sideline. He's praying, and they say that's really not okay. It's not okay for school children to bow their knee in the hallway. That's a disturbance. But then you can see a picture of New York City with hundreds, perhaps thousands of Muslims praying and shutting the streets down, and that's cool because we don't want to offend anybody except Christians. That's okay. Well, Hezekiah seems to be kind of maybe self-centered, and that's really what led into this prophecy that Hezekiah was delivered by the power of God. He did seek the Lord. He was a good king, but then he got prideful. And an entourage, get this, from Babylon came, and they brought him a gift, and they said, hey, we heard you were sick and you're better, and he showed them the palace, and he showed them all the gold and everything, and he made it all about himself. And then the prophecy that comes, that we just read, comes on the heels of that pride. Rather than giving glory to God and saying, this is the temple of Almighty God, this is what God has given me, he said, no, this is me, this is my stuff. See my stuff, take the tour. I want to show you everything that belongs to me, me, me. And then the prophecy comes and God says, oh yeah? That self-centeredness captures really the problems with Israel. And so there they were, in Babylonian captivity by the rivers of Babylon. Psalm 137, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. We put away our musical instruments is the idea. For there our captors, Psalm 137.3, demanded of us songs. And our tormentors, mirth, they demanded songs of joy. They said, sing, sing us one of those songs of Zion. We, we heard you guys worship this, this God and, and we got you in our land now, but we want to hear some of your worship songs. Can you imagine being a captive in a foreign land and your captors and tormentors say to you, sing some worship songs for us. We just want to hear how they go. Do you remember any of them? Sing us a tune. And they said, here's the response of God's people. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, Psalm 137, 5, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And with longing, the captives looked towards their homeland and they said, man, we can't even sing anymore. We used to praise God in the temple. We used to rejoice in our salvation. Now here we are and our captives mock our faith. That's the backdrop. This is why, if you wondered, uh, I shared with you that chapters 38 and 39 chronologically actually come before chapters 36 and 37. And some Bible students came up to me and they said, Pastor Michael, why is that? Why would those chapters, if chronologically they come before, why would they be put after in our Bible? And it's because your Bible is often put together thematically, not chronologically. That is, oftentimes themes are submitted to us. And this makes perfect logical sense because this next chapter is written to the captives. 
It's written to those who would be in captivity, in slavery, and it's meant to encourage them because they've been asking a question. Skip ahead, verse 27 of chapter 40. Here's what they've been saying. Why do you say, O Jacob? Now, God is saying to Israel, and assert, O Israel, 4027, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Apparently, in this Babylonian captivity, the people of Israel kept saying, God, where is my justice? Where are you? Where is my deliverance? Apparently, my way, verse 27, is hidden from the Lord. It escapes his notice. I don't know where God is, but he certainly, if he knew we were here, he would do something about this. And remember, the people stayed in Babylon for 70 years. So if you are Daniel and you're there as a teenager, guess what? By the time the people move back to uh, Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, a full generation plus had gone by. If you were a teenager there, maybe you got to see the hope of the deliverance as Cyrus, king of Persia, finally gave the the right for the people of Israel to return back to their homeland. But it was 70 painful years. Years of questions, years of doubt, years of struggle. And you have to ask yourself the question, as God is allowing his people to be disciplined for their own actions, how does God feel? What does he say? What is the mindset of heaven in these kinds of circumstances. And we're going to get ushered in beautifully to a heavenly court, a heavenly scene, where we're going to see dialogue about their situation. God is going to be talking about what his heart towards his people. Look at it with me, Isaiah 40, verse 1, and the title is Comfort My People. Notice a double double emphasis. Comfort, O comfort. These are plural imperatives in the Hebrew Comfort my people, says your God. You want to know God's heart as we get a peek into the heavenly throne, what God might say to his people who are in captivity, who are wondering where he is. He says, not condemn. He says, comfort my people. This is a beautiful Hebrew word. It's nakam. And the word means to sigh or to breathe strongly or to be sorry or to pity or console. The word means to be moved with pity to the point of compassion. God is saying, my heart goes out to my people, even though they are in a situation where they are getting, if you will, what they deserved, what they even kind of cried out for, my heart is pitiful towards them. I sigh when they sigh. I grieve when they grieve. You saw this in the life of Jesus in the New Testament when his friend Lazarus died and he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Though he knew he would raise Lazarus from the dead, we are told in John eleven thirty five that Jesus wept because God has a heart of compassion. When he looked over Jerusalem, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Do you remember? He cried over the city. Two times we know of that Jesus cried in his earthly ministry. One is at the tomb of Lazarus, and the second is over an unbelieving Jerusalem who thinks he's a political deliverer rather than the savior of their sins. That's the heart of God. And God doesn't change. And so God says, comfort my people. And God is directing what we might call three heavenly heralds. And we'll see it in a moment. But he is giving instruction. He's saying, bring comfort to my people. That's what God wants. That's what he is instructing to do. We don't know who the heavenly heralds are. We don't know if they're angels. We don't know if they're, uh, you know, this is directives towards Isaiah specifically. 
But what we do know is that this is what God wants. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Thanks for tuning in to Walk in Truth today. Did you know there's more where that came from? Download the Living Truth app to listen to more of Pastor Michael's teachings whenever you want. You can even watch videos. And if you're local to Southern California, you can get updates on church events, new studies, and more. Download the free Living Truth app today. We'd love to see who's listening. So please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walkin' Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walkin' Truth. You want to know God's heart as we get a peek into the heavenly throne, what God might say to his people who are in captivity, who are wondering where he is, he says, not condemn. He says, comfort my people. This is a beautiful Hebrew word. It's nakam. And the word means to sigh or to breathe strongly or to be sorry or to pity or console. The word means to be moved with pity to the point of compassion. God is saying, my heart goes out to my people, even though they are in a situation where they are getting, if you will, what they deserved, what they even kind of cried out for, my heart is pitiful towards them. I sigh when they sigh. I grieve when they grieve. You saw this in the life of Jesus in the New Testament when his friend Lazarus died and he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Though he knew he would raise Lazarus from the dead, we are told in John 11.35 that Jesus wept. Because God has a heart of compassion. When he looked over Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Do you remember? He cried over the city. Two times we know of that Jesus cried in his earthly ministry. One is at the tomb of Lazarus, and the second is over an unbelieving Jerusalem who thinks he's a political deliverer rather than the savior of their sins. That's the heart of God. And God doesn't change. And so God says, Comfort my people. And God is directing what we might call three heavenly heralds, and we'll see it in a moment. But he is giving instruction. He's saying, bring comfort to my people. That's what God wants. That's what he is instructing to do. We don't know who the heavenly heralds are. We don't know if they're angels. We don't know if they're, uh, you know, this is directives towards Isaiah specifically. But what we do know is that this is what God wants. And in one way, we can fulfill this as his people. Because we are to comfort others with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. Our God is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. God doesn't just comfort you to make you comfortable. He comforts you to make you a comforter. Amen? And so God is giving a directive, and I think you can make this personal. I think you and I can say, there are going to be times in our lives when this verse is very personal, when God says to you, go and comfort my people. And that's kind of how he spoke to me this week, is my people need comfort. I know you get a lot of exhortation in this fellowship. I know you get a lot of encouragement to live the right way and evangelize and, and, you know, live for the glory of God. But you need to know that your father knows that we are dust. (laughs) He knows that we're weak. He knows we have good intentions sometimes and we just sometimes can't seem to get there. He knows that there's a sin that easily entangles us that we want to just get rid of and somehow we come back to. And and despite all that, I want you to see in verse 1, he says, 
he calls the people my people. And he says, I am your God. That's beautiful. And that's written to a people who are in captivity because they rebelled against him. And, they're, and they seem to be walking around saying, where is God? He's forgotten me. And still, what does God say? I am your God and you are my people. That's just a beautiful thing. And so into this court, we are taken. And verse 2 continues the theme. Speak kindly, or if you have the New King James, it says, speak comfort. NIV says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And call out to her that her warfare, that means a period of duress, and it specifically speaks of the Babylonian captivity. Call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so God says, I want you to speak kindly. He's speaking to the heavenly heralds, those who will bring the message to his people. And he says, I want you to speak comfort to the people. Though they've been in Babylonian captivity, though they have paid for their sins is the idea, yet and this, this idea double here in your Bible can speak of an equivalent discipline for what they have done wrong, but it also can point to the idea of God's grace mixed with the discipline. It's a, kind of an interesting word here or wordplay. But the idea here is that God wants to speak grace. Yeah, they've gotten some discipline, but he wants to speak grace. And he says, this period of turmoil is ending. Sometimes we wonder as we go through seasons of our life, is it ever going to end? <laughs> Sometimes you feel like maybe the heavy hand is upon your life of God and you think, Lord, could you lift your hand? I, I think I've gotten the message now, you know. Is it going to come to an end? And God says, yes. Your warfare has ended. A voice, verse 3, is calling, clear the way for the Lord. This is the entrance of our God and King. If you like headings, the first heading is God bringing comfort. The second heading now will point to our God and King. A voice is calling, this is the idea of the herald again, clear the way for the Lord. He's going to be the answer to all that ails us. In the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, verse 4, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory, the kabod, the kavod of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh or all mankind will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This section from Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 is quoted in Matthew 3 verses 1 through 3 and it's specifically uh, connected to the ministry of John the Baptist who would say to the people, clear out the stubble. When an ancient king would come, they would try to smooth the ground because there weren't, weren't really highways in that day. There were dirt roads at best. And sometimes when an ancient king was traveling, a monarch, uh, they would want to clear the way so that the, his chariot would not you know, in any way be uh, stumble, etc. So they would clear out all the rocks and they would try to level places for the coming of the king. And that was John the Baptist's ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It was to clear away obstacles from men's hearts. It was to prepare a way of the Lord. It was to say, get ready. The king is coming. You will see his glory. The glory of the only begotten son, uh, begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He is coming. He is coming. Behold, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. That was John's job. He was the herald. He was to herald the coming of the king. The answer to all that ails the people is Jesus Christ. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he revealed that glory. I told you the word kabod or kavod in Hebrew means to open the door within. It means to show who you are. And Jesus Christ shows who God is. He is the majesty of God revealed, God's final message to the world. And he came and tabernacled among us to make us holy, to spill his blood. I told you that holiness is an interesting Hebrew word. It's kadosh. It means what comes from the threshing floor. It has the idea of the separating of wheat from chaff. The chaff is blown away and the wheat remains. That's the idea of holiness. And do you know something? Jesus came to tabernacle among us and the Jerusalem temple was built. It was purchased by David. And do you remember what it was? It was a threshing floor. In other words, the Jerusalem temple was built on a threshing floor owned by Ornan the Jebusite. That's 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. Everything that God wants to say about holiness is, has to do with his coming and his glory coming into our lives, flooding our hearts and minds so that we can see beyond our circumstances. And a voice calls out, verse 6, and then he answered, what shall I call out? Here's the, the third of the idea of the heavenly heralds. It may be that Isaiah is asking the question, a voice call, says, call out. The answer, verse 6, what shall I call out? What shall I say? And here's the The answer, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness or glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. That's what happened to the people of Israel. Surely the people are grass. People are transient. But so are bad circumstances and difficult times. The grass withers, verse 8. The flower fades, but the word of our God by contrast to our transiency, stands for how long? Forever. You've been listening to The Second Isaiah, Part 1 on Walk in Truth, Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 40. And if you missed any part of today's program, you can always listen to Walk in Truth on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe for free to hear Pastor Michael's teachings in more books of the Bible. Now here's Pastor Michael with a final word. Well, the division of the book of Isaiah, 39 chapters uh, focused on Israel and uh, challenges to them and oracles and heavy messages and stuff like that. And now, uh, starting in chapter 40 and going up through 66, we're going to have 27 chapters, almost like the division of the Old and New Testament. And right out of the gate, there's going to be this idea of comfort my people and then a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, it doesn't mean that the first half of Isaiah didn't have prophecy about Messiah because it did in chapter 7 and 11, etc. Uh, chapter 9 as well. But we're going to get some incredible encouragement and uh, just powerful teaching about how the God of the Bible is the true God of the entire universe. And it's going to open up with a word of comfort, four servant songs ahead of us, which are going to point directly to the Messiah and what he will come to do and what he will come to do. And we can think of this in terms of, you know, kind of the idea of the new covenant as he will come to die. 
This will culminate in Isaiah 52 and 53 as we look at the suffering servant and the incredible prophecy about what he would suffer on the cross, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And so, so much rich content coming up in the second half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. And I'm so glad that you've been listening. Many of you have been listening since we began the book, or uh, really since we've been been on the air on your station. And we're so grateful for you. And we just want to tell you we love you and we appreciate your partnership with us and your prayers and your encouragement. And reach out to us through the website at walkintruth.com. Walkintruth.com. We love to hear from you. Now remember, there is a church in the city of Corona largely behind Walk in Truth. It's called Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's where I serve as senior pastor. If you're making plans to uh, come on out for uh, the Holy Week services or Resurrection Sunday, we'd love to meet you. You can find out information and driving directions to the church in Corona called Living Truth when you go to walkintruth.com and click on the church tab. That's walkintruth.com. This is Pastor Michael. Lord willing, we'll see you right here tomorrow. And just a reminder that this is a listener-supported ministry. Would you consider becoming a partner for just $5 a month? We're blessed to know that the teachings reach thousands of listeners like you every weekday through our radio partners and through the podcast. We could use your help for the price of a cup of coffee. If you've learned something from Pastor Michael's teaching, or if you've been encouraged, please help others like you. Visit walkintruth.com to donate. That's walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 40 called The Second Isaiah. I'm Mike Massaro. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Our goal is to equip you to reach out with God's truth to all people.